All right, so uh, today's sermon is going to be uh, sort of a big picture look at a, at a certain topic. And the title is The Local Church is Not a Mini Temple. And so this is going to be surveying something that's somewhat of a problem in the church at large. And so because there are so many different aspects to this, we're going to be in a lot of places in Scripture, so hope you can follow along. But there is one sort of key anchoring text, uh, and it's uh, one verse in 2 Samuel 7. 13. And this verse seems, uh, when you read it as you're going through it, to be sort of immediately about David and Solomon, but it is actually sort of, they sort of foreshadow its fulfillment and really it's pointing to Christ as we find out in the New Testament. And uh, 2 Samuel 7.13 reads, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so one huge theme all throughout scripture, and you see it in the Old Testament, you see it in the New Testament, is this theme of God wanting a place to reside with his people and with his people under his rule for his glory and for their good and for their flourishing. That is like a huge theme in scripture. Um, there's another book I, I could have recommended. Uh, it's called A House for My Name by Peter Lightheart. And this book really gets into the nitty gritty of that theme throughout scripture, especially it's focused on the Old, the old Testament. But... Um, so that's sort of like a, a governing verse for our sermon today. So brothers and sisters, uh, we as the Church of Jesus Christ need to remember that we're in the business of planting, advancing, and sustaining Christian civilization. And uh, you know, if you look at the Great Commission, it's not just to go out and evangelize. It's, it is that. It's all about evangelization. It's about discipleship, teaching people God's ways, teaching people the commands of Jesus Christ and his law and his ways. And so um, that's what we, and I think the, the Fellowship of Christian Reconstructions Church's statement nails it on the head, that we are about planting, advancing, um, and sustaining Christian civilization. We are not in the business of planting, advancing, and sustaining many temples. Okay, and so this is sort of the preface for the sermon today, uh, this uh, sort of mini temple mindset. It's no overstatement to say that this error of the local church masquerading as a mini temple is one of the most pernicious, entrenched, and pervasive errors in Protestantism. Uh, notice I didn't say Eastern Orthodoxy or Anglo-Catholicism. Um, you know, they look way more like temples in many ways, but their temple mindset is usually just more obvious. And it's not like they're hiding it, basically. Like, they think a certain way about what church should be, and, and it's quite obvious to, to see them do that. So if you're hearing about this problem, and we're going to get into what this problem is a little more, but if you're hearing about this for the first time, and you have really no idea that this problem exists, uh, you're in good company, because for a long time, it was very sort of hard to detect for me as well. Um, but even in sort of solid good local churches, this problem can be can be big. And by design, it's not supposed to be obvious. Um, a lot of people are just sort of function, functioning in this sort of cultural waters. They're swimming in these waters and they don't really even know it. Um, but its effects, if you look, if you zoom out and look at its effects in the church, in our country, in society, are tragic and, and monumental. So it's, it's a huge issue, and especially as you look over the long term. So remember, as we go through the sermon today, the difference between truth and error is not always easily discerned as black and white, right versus wrong. But more commonly, you'll see sort of almost right mixed with some error, and that's where the fallacy comes in many times. And so that's just something to be aware of. In this case, it's, it's no different. Um, it's, it's part of the reason why this, this problem is so enduring. So in this sermon, we're going to be surveying seven ways that the local church uh, as a temple mindset, having a temple mindset, can lead us astray and steps that we can take to help to remedy the problem. But first, what I want to do is just to orient ourselves for a minute around a brief refresher of sort of Ecclesiology 101, the study and doctrine of the church 101, just for a few points of it. We obviously, that's a massive topic and we can't address everything, and especially not in great detail, but I do want to sort of just reorient ourselves with some, some fast points about doctrine, about the church, okay? All right, so what is the church? And specifically, when I say the church, the church universal. Well, the church universal has primary re uh, reference to the identity of God's people. It's the collective singular body of Christ. 
and the whole number of God's covenant assembly uh, belong to this one body of Christ. And there, there's only one body of Christ, and it's permanent. So when we talk about the church universal, that's what we're talking about. It includes both those who are already in glory, that's sometimes referred to as the church triumphant, so those who are in heaven now, and those on the earth now, that's us, the church militant, as is commonly referred to. And taken together, though the church militant and the church triumphant, they make up the one body of Christ. And again, it is permanent. There is the visible church, which includes all those who have been baptized into the household of God, circumcised in the old covenant. And, you know, Baptists don't get hung up there. But there is also the invisible church, which includes all those who possess saving faith in Christ. And the point is that membership in the church universal has direct relation to the covenant mediated by Christ. So 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, For just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Okay, so that is the thousand-foot view of the church universal. All right, another uh, concept that we want to just cover here is the temple, okay? Temple, and the word temple is all throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New. This term is actually very closely related to the term church, it, um, according to its spiritual aspects. And different, it differs from the word church mainly in its emphasis. Its primary emphasis, when we think of the word temple, we're thinking about where God's presence resides. So anytime you're seeing temple or tabernacle sometimes, it is about where God's presence is. And in the Old Testament, we observe an emphasis, an emphasis on the earthly temple or tabernacle made of stone or with hands, as it says in Hebrews. Uh, this was a temporary shadow, this stone temple of the true temple, which was to come in Christ. And so this physical stone brick and mortar temple was a symbol of something of greater value, of greater importance, of greater substance. The plan all along was for God to once again reside with his people by building a house for his name. Okay. Later we see that the church made up of God's people are referred to as living stones. They're actually the stones that make up this house that God is building. And it makes up this heavenly temple made without hands, right? It's not a brick and mortar temple. It is, a, it is the body of Christ. And it's where the Holy Spirit would then be poured out and God would then reside with us permanently in his house. So we must remember that the New Testament, so as we're thinking about these things, we've got to remember that the New Testament was written during an era in redemptive history that we're not in today. Because in those days, there were these vestiges of the Old Covenant era that were still in place. The New Covenant had made the Old obsolete, but there was this overlapping age. The end of the Old Covenant was, was fading away, but was still there in some ways. And the New had begun, so they were in this overlapping age period. And the entire New Testament was written during that overlapping age prior to the destruction of the Temple in AD 70. Um, in the early days of the church uh, in Jerusalem, this is an evidence of that. They would still go to the temple. And by that, I don't mean synagogues, because synagogues are not temples. They would go to the, the literal Herod's temple there, standing there, brick and mortar building, um, before it was destroyed in 70 AD. And they would meet in homes, and they would also attend temple together. Okay, so this second temple, uh, it, it was first built by uh, under Solomon. David planned it, Solomon built it, and that uh, stood for a long time, and then it was destroyed. Then they had the first exile, and then uh, eventually uh, they re, uh, began construction on the second temple and finished under Herod's reign. And that temple uh, was very central to all of the Levitical priesthood, the sacrificial system that was going on there. And, um, but remember, it was being phased out. All of those things were being phased out. Uh, Hebrews 8.13 talks about that, about it's now becoming obsolete. Uh, of course, Christ foretold that this temple would be destroyed in 70 AD. Um, and it was, just as he said it would be. And what we have to recognize is that individual local churches are never re once referred to as temples. Church and local church is a biblical category. Like you'll see 
you know, to the church in Corinth or to the church here or to the church here or to the churches over here. So that is a biblical category, church and local church. But temple and local temple is not a biblical category. There is no such thing as a local temple. The synagogues weren't local temples and whatever they have morphed into with modern Judaism uh, during the Bible times and in the early church, the synagogues did not function as temples. There was a temple and it was in Jerusalem. Okay. All right. So, um, and that, that can be sort of seen uh, also in various parts of scripture. Acts chapter 7, verses 48 through 50. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things, right? God made all creation. He doesn't need to reside in a house made of stone. He gave this temple as a picture of what would happen one day. But, um, you know, God does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. All right. So that's easy enough. We've talked about the, the church. We've talked about the temple. Now, what about the local church? Many times in scripture, as we mentioned, local churches are referenced. It is, has some similar aspects to the universal church in that the local church has primary reference to the identity of uh, members of the one body of Christ, but in a specific region. So the local church, it's a communal geographic expression of the one uh, covenanted body of God's people specific to geographic location and local community. The local church differs from the church universal in several other ways. Firstly, unlike the church universal, the local church is made up entirely of the church militant. So those of us who are here today and alive, right? It's not permanent. Um, unlike the church universal, which lasts forever, individual churches, they might last for hundreds of years. Uh, they might come and go. They might dissolve. They might be wiped out. They might apostatize. They're, they're not necessarily eternal, right? Like the universal churches. And then secondly, unlike the church universal, the local church cannot be referred to as the body. We cannot say the cross and crown is the body. Right. Because the body is all the people of God. Right. And it's not even really a body. Right. It is a localized expression of the one body of Christ. That's what Cross and Crown Church would be. The universal church is not comprised of thousands upon thousands of individual local church bodies. OK, that's sort of a category error that sort of creeps in many times. To the contrary, there is one body with many members. And as, as we read there, and members doesn't refer to local churches. It refers to individual Christians. Okay, so that's important to remember. Thirdly, unlike the church universal, the local church uh, and its membership is not mitigated directly to the local church, but indirectly to the church universal. In other words, what do I mean by that? No one local church has been given any unique standard for local church membership based on any criteria other than the criteria for member, church membership in the universal church. So local churches are not a law unto themselves, and they're nowhere permitted to admit into membership those who Christ rejects or to reject those who Christ welcomes. Local church membership is about recognizing Christians who are already in covenantal union with, with Christ. So when we welcome new members into our church, we're, we're recognizing their their covenant that they already have with Christ. We're not welcoming them into our club, right? Okay, so that's an important distinction to remember. Uh, fourthly, unlike, uh, unlike the universal church membership, local church membership is not necessary for salvation, nor is a requirement for salvation. Uh, we could go into a litany of detailed scenarios where um, why a truly regenerate believer may not be currently recognized as a member of a local church. Uh, now, if somebody hates the local church, they just want to sort of like, oh, it's just me and Jesus and I don't have to worry about God's people. Yeah, that could be a problem. That could be evidence of an unregenerate heart. But is it a requirement for uh, salvation? No, that's sort of a works-based uh, religion, which we are not part of, okay? Um, so generally speaking, though, it is wise to... And it's helpful, it's normative, it's good for Christians to be recognized members of local churches, uh, but again, not a requirement for salvation. Okay, so we talked about the, the church universal, we talked about the temple, we talked about the local church. Now, let's talk about the priesthood, okay? So first, let's read from the book of Exodus, chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. 
for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So when you think about priest, you know, a lot of us, we go immediately to the Levitical priesthood. But keep in mind that this concept of priesthood predated that whole thing. The whole idea for Israel before the Levitical priesthood was even, even uh, instituted was the establishment of a priesthood, a royal priesthood, priest kings. That's what we all were to be. That's what Israel was to be. And we have a mission as priest kings to flourish in all the earth in God's presence. And we actually see this pictured, although not explicitly, in the Garden of Eden. All right. So with Adam and Eve, they're ruling the creation in God's presence together. They're on a mission together. The Garden of Eden uh, being the temple as distinguished from the rest of Eden. So when you think of the Garden of Eden, think there's a garden and then there's Eden. That's why it's called the Garden of Eden. So they're not the same thing. There's a broader Eden and then there's a garden planted within the land of Eden. And they were supposed to live under God's rule in his place, communing with him directly. So that was their, their priestly function, their kingly function, was to rule over the creation under God's authority in perfect harmony. But after their rejection of God, a blood atonement system, sometimes we miss this, was immediately instituted. Because you immediately had the sacrifice of animals to cover their shame. It talks about using the animal skins to cover up their shame. That was an immediate sort of foreshadowing of this, this, this uh, animal sacrifice system that was to come. And then as they were cast out of the garden, angels, remember, guarded the temple um, so that none could enter lest they die. They had swords of flaming fire. And so to get back into God's holy presence and into his realm was, was not allowed because you would die, right? And so that is actually similar to the Levitical priests we're going to get to in a second. They were responsible also for guarding the tabernacle. What was the tabernacle? God's presence, his most holy place. And if anybody came near the the holy place, and they were not authorized, they would be slaughtered. And that was one of the Levitical priests' goals, just like those angels standing outside of God's presence in Eden, Eden preventing them from coming back in. And this whole concept, uh, if you've read Joel McDermott's book, A Consuming Fire, the, it's very helpful to show how this works. The, the rest of scripture after the fall is all about how God's people could come back into communion with God and come back near into his holy presence without getting killed. Right? And all the way from Eden to Christ is the story of that happening, basically. So after the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the garden, we see animal sacrifices repeated before Levitical priesthood. Abel, Noah, Abraham, Job all talk about instances where they're sacrificing burnt offerings of animals to the Lord. And um, that's, again, all before Levitical priesthood. But even during the days of the Levitical priesthood, the whole nation of Israel, not just the Levites, were to be a royal priesthood. In order to realize that promise, however, Christ's new covenant would have, would have to be ushered in. With the Levitical priesthood in our day, now superseded by Christ as the great high priest of a new and better covenant, um, all believers in Christ are restored to our originally purposed function as priest kings. Okay, So when you think about the priesthood, it's broader than just the Levitical priesthood. That's the point I want to get across. Okay, So church universal, local church, temple, the priesthood, pastors and elders. This is our final point of of getting or oriented here. In the New Covenant, though uh, pastors and elders may carry similar duties to activities which the Levitical priests carried out, so teaching, dispute resolution, Levitical priests did some other things that, that keep going in, 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 in many pastors do these duties, like teaching or like um, dispute resolution as mentioned. Uh, but they're not, pastors and elders, they're not a priesthood. Like there was the Levitical priesthood, there was uh, the Melchizedekian priesthood, as it talks about Jesus being a priest in the order of Melchizedek, that's a priesthood. But pastors and elders, they're just not a priesthood. It's just a different category. They're just not a priesthood. Um, they are not appointed by familial line as the Levites were. So to be a Levitical priest, you had to be in this descendant tribe of Levi. Um, it's not like that with pastors. They, they don't function as the new covenant equivalent of the Levitical priesthood according to the ceremonial aspects of the Levitical priesthood duties. Pastors and elders, they possess no special access to God, carry no unique favor with God, and are not specially authorized to do anything that Christians, regular Joe Christians, cannot do, other than be a pastor or be an elder. And we'll get more to that later. 
Um, in practice, they may routinely lead in things like sermons, baptisms, administering the Lord's Supper. And that's actually good, and it's a, it's a good normative thing to happen. And so that's not a bad thing. But it's not that they are authorized, especially as a priesthood, to carry out those duties. Okay? In the New Testament, we see, because they're not a priesthood. just want to make that clear. In the New Testament, we see that, that pastors and elders, they're ordained according to the qualifications for eldership, as seems good to the people of God, to positively aid the kingdom and affect its good ordering and its edification in the local churches. All right, so that's the refresher. Now, where do we run into problems is when we start to confuse categories, okay? The church runs into all kinds of problems by simply mixing up categories of the temple, the church universal, and the church local, and then running with those confusions to their logical conclusions. Temple elements were only ever meant to apply to the church universal, begin to creep into our local church practices and how our local churches function. Principles given to the church universal are improperly being applied to the local church. And suddenly, we start to see Christians who think that the more their individual local church functions and patterns after a sort of mini temple, the more faithful that church is. And before we know it, our whole pattern of emphasis and activity as a local church becomes that of replicating defunct patterns of the Old Covenant era. And many times this is not an intentional, explicit thing that is said or even realized by those who are doing it. But it's sort of like you've fallen into a pattern and an era and, you, and, an era and you don't know that you're even in it. It's the hardest era to get out of. So we become busy sort of polishing these ornamental accoutrements, which were shadows pointing forward to the future temple of God, which be, would be characterized by righteousness and peace, by ethics, okay? Uh, Hebrews 9, 24 and 26, which Chris just, just read for us. I want to read it again. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. So all those Levitical priesthood, the sacrificial system, all those things, the dress, the vestments, the ornaments, the, the practices, they were all copies, lesser things that were pointing forward to greater things that we're in today copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So maintaining these copies and these sort of outward forms can be distracting, but it's more than just a distraction because they can also be used manipulatively to um, cement authority for those who are power hungry and who want to use power over others. Christ did not come in extravagant garb and pomp so that we would bow to him. To the contrary, he had no form or majesty that we should esteem him and no outward beauty that we would desire him, as the prophet says in Isaiah 53. And we can all point to, as I said earlier, to the Roman Catholics or to the Eastern Orthodox, the Anglo-Catholics as the most egregious culprits in conflating church with the local temple. But the truth is, the rest of Protestantism, as we said, suffers from the same problem in its substance. It's just less obvious. Okay? So next we're going to survey seven examples within the local church context where this mindset creeps in. The degree to which this mindset exists in local churches varies. So not every church is the most egregious example of this, but they do exist in one degree or another in most Protestant and Reformed churches today. All right, so what's the first, what's the first way that this mindset can creep in the local church? Local churches that treat their buildings as if they were physical temples, okay? This is kind of an easy one, but if you've ever heard it say like, you know, this is a house of God, you can't do X, Y, Z in here, right? Or uh, we can't engage in commerce here or set up a commerce here and set up a book table or, you know, don't you know that Jesus flipped the tables for that, right? So we know that, I mean, stepping back to our, our ecclesiology, we know that the temple is the place where God resides and is com comprised of the whole number of believers. This is not a physical building, but a spiritual building where God resides with his people by the Holy Spirit living within them. So while Paul likens the universal, universal church in the model of a temple, we can't get this confused and assume that local churches are each mini temples. We can't, when we think about the local church, we shouldn't conjure up images of Levitical temple practices. Our conduct has, is to be holy in all our dealings. We don't need to siphon off the local church building that they use as the district where we need to be extra holy, right? Our conduct, our ethics needs to be holy no matter where we are, okay? 
Um, have you ever walked into your local church building? And I, I've been guilty of this in the past. And I've seen, you know, it's a coffee shop or this is going on. And I'm thinking, yeah, Jesus would have driven out these people with a whip. But <laughs> in so doing, you've just demonstrated that you have a local church as a mini temple mindset. The house of the Lord is not a physical building. It is the people. All right. Acts uh, 17, 24 through 25. Again, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in, in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. Okay? Uh, number two. So number one, treating the temple, treating the local church building as a temple, a physical temple. Number two, local churches that compare, compare Levitical tithing to the funding of their local church. Okay? So this can be a touchy one for a lot of churches that are set up this way. Most Protestant church budgets look pretty much the same. Okay? And we're talking about well-established churches that have been around for more than a decade in this case. The average local church has between 50 and 200 people made up of families who give regularly. Uh, and how is this budget typically allocated? Typically, and these are the statistics, 60% will go to staff salary, benefits, office expenses. 25 to 35% will go to pay for the church building with rents, debts, mortgage payments, insurance, and so on. And that leaves 10% for everything else. And usually that's some sort of program uh, structure that is set up. But 10% is left after all of that. And at the end of the day, the flow of money is from the tithe is going inward to a small subset of activity within the local church. And there's such a, meanwhile, there's such a vast need for Christians to offer all kinds of assistance and be involved in the broader kingdom of God, whether it's medicine, Christian education, private welfare, all of those things will be tied to Christian discipleship and accountability and God's law. And these are activities that actually help the church have a tangible impact in transforming the social order of the day. And sadly, the church today does not come close to having this. And that's not something that can be created overnight, by the way. It takes years of faithful stewardship of God's resources, intergenerationally faithful families to even have resources to set up rival social order to the ones that exist today. But when the church is just continually in this pattern of, of taking the ties and bringing it inward, taking the ties and bringing it inwards to mostly be devoted to the temple sort of aspects of Christianity as they see it, then it's never going to change. Um, all right. So um, at Crossing Crown Church, you know, we hope to get up to one day like 20 families, 40 families, you know, we'll see what God does in the years to come. But if that happens, you know, if we've got 20 families, 40 families, we're not going to be able to fit into one building anymore. Uh, you know, maybe we can have like big monthly feasts uh, at a community hall and we all get together. But um, if that happens and we divide into two churches or three churches or four local churches, you know, we don't necessarily need a full-time pastor for each one of those churches. Uh, it used to be much more common for pastors and preachers to go from group to group to group. And that's just one idea of how it leaves a lot of opportunity for putting money towards other things, um, endeavors sort of outside of just the local church. So no, we're not obviously not there yet. We're uh, in the incubator. We're a very young church, and and I know a lot of us aren't established here for very long. But you know, in the next ten years, check back with us, and and you know, we'll see where where God leads us. But back to the tithe. With the order of the Levitical priesthood, their job was to build and maintain the physical temple. It was a full time job for them. The weaving of intricate vestments, the sacrificial system with the inspection and the burning of the various elements, including the butchering of countless animals, maintaining the temple itself, the expensive uh, temple ornaments, the rituals, the collection of, of all the first fruits of the land, guarding the temple perimeter, perimeter and, and all their other responsibilities. All of this had to be paid for with great expense. So whenever we talk about regular tithing, we have to remember that this was collected to support this whole operation, the ceremonial aspects which are now dissolved in the new covenant. Uh, obviously, the, as mentioned before, the Levites did have a couple of other uh, functions like teaching and dispute resolution and even advising the civil magistrate that um, were not, uh, you know, pastors do those today, sure. Um, and, and all Christians can aid in those as well. But the tithe was rendered to the, to the temple system, which again pointed forward to the church universal, not to the local church. Yet if we follow the logic of so many local church leaders and pastors and elders, they sort of act like the tithe is totally owed to the local church. Unlike under the Levitical order, Christians today have freedom to determine where their tithes will go. Now, of course, in our context here at Cross and Crown, we have a decades and centuries long perspective. We pray that by God's grace, 
uh, in the next 10 years, God will cause our community to be fruitful and grow to a larger size. But right now, um, as a brand new church plant with families who are all first generation Virginia families, uh, limited intergenerational wealth, uh, the pastor and his family moving here to do ministry among us, there are certain realities and practicalities, which means it makes sense for much of our giving to be devoted internally here to Cross and Crown. But our trajectory is the, the key thing. What is our trajectory? It's one of aiming towards having the resources of the church make a big impact for the kingdom, and not just to the local church. Okay. So number three, mindset of the temple mindset creeping into the local church. Local church is functioning as temple events, not social orders. Okay. So for those of you who have had a ton of experience in local churches, American local church life is highly limited and centered around the activities of attendance of a Sunday gathering where we can sing and worship, receive communion, be washed with the water of the word in a sermon. But much like the temple mindset, it's about going to an event, partaking in a ceremony, and meaningful as that may be, and then sort of reconnecting with the rest of your life. And yes, you may have attendance at prayer groups or small groups and the like, um, but the relationship in the church don't uh, revolve around shared activity in business, schools, media, medicine, nutrition, loans, welfare programs, and the like. Not enough, at least, to create a rival social order and Christian civilization. In fact, as an aside, many churches sort of use the state apparatus to help their their uh, institution uh, succeed. So, like they'll, you know, recommend people get on food stamps and. Go, to, go get on welfare and without even checking to see if there's an, a solution um, within the local church or, or a loan or those kinds of things. Um, okay, so obviously not everyone has the option of being that connected to a local church uh, for various practical reasons. And that's the same thing at Cross and Crown uh, for some folks. But again, this is where the church should be aiming. Participation in a Christian social order, not just events. Okay, uh, people don't realize... When, a lot of times you think about third world Christians um, who are in persecuted countries, who are in underground churches. They're rejected from the world systems that they're in, like in China. Um, if you want to be a true hardcore believer, most of the time it means you have to like go underground. And that, though, forces these believers to create these interconnected networks, which are for all of life. And they're, they're seen as sort of the lifeblood of the church. And when it comes to, say, something like church discipline... Like, you know, for let's say the unrepentant adulterer in the congregation, when you get kicked out of their churches, you're not just kick, getting kicked out of like a weekly event, you're getting kicked out of a whole way of life that you depend on. And so it's like you're literally being handed over to Satan's kingdom when you are um, uh, excommunicated for, for things like that. You know, people complain a lot in, in our circles about church discipline not being effective. Um, in our time, but at the same time, they're fostering this redu reductionistic culture in the church, which itself makes church discipline many times impotent. And this is the uh, this is also in the in the New uh, Testament church in the early church in Acts. It tells us that people were doing everything together. They were meeting in homes together. They were eating together. They were doing business together in the synagogues, and not which were not many temples, right? Synagogues were not modeled after the temple. They were places of biblical teaching and exhortation, feasting, education, dispute mitigation, welfare centers, civic engagement, hospitality, and, and so forth. When Christians were kicked out of the synagogues, they brought that same culture. So, so the, uh, the Jewish establishment who rejected Christ and persecuted the early church, they kicked many of the Christians out of those synagogues. And when that happened, these these early Christians began meeting in homes, but they brought that same synagogue culture with them to their homes. So it was not this mini temple ritual once a week event. It was this faith for all of life culture that they had. And their gatherings, their pattern of activity didn't look like a lot of the church does in America today. It's not uncommon for big name preachers in reform circles to bemoan Christians in America for holding their Christianity too casually while comparing them unfavorably to Christians in third world countries or other past generations like the Puritans who are, you know, beacons of devotion. But, you know, and, and they'll sort of think that we're all a bunch of spoiled brats, you know, who we want the, Christi, the cushy Christian life. And, and in some circles and in many cases, I'm sure they're right about that. But all the while, they themselves, they're complicit in perpetuating the very culture that creates this casual Christianity, right? If you don't want casual Christianity dominating your local church, 
then your local church needs to be about building Christendom. It needs to be about doing more than the reductionistic temple uh, set of temple activities. If you aren't building Christendom in your church, if you're not oriented in that, you're going to be creating a culture that fosters casual Christians, period. And pastors in these churches need to start stop shaming their flock over their casual Christianity, and they need to start leading. The enemy of faithful, steadfast, consistent fellowship in the body is the lack of authentic Christian civilization where uh, the local church you know, has interwoven their lives together to such a degree that they actually depend on each other for various things in their life, where they're applying the law word of God to all areas of life, businesses, education of children, lending, welfare, adjudicating disputes, apprenticeships, uh, planning regular corporate feasts, health and medicine practices, hosting civic events, cooperation and building up of intergenerational biblical trustee families, and on it goes. So when pastors are continually bathing their congregations in reductionistic teaching about theology, eschatology, the kingdom, and all the pra practical applications of God's law, it actually undermines the will of the local church to build a mini-civilization. Can't be faked. Building a mini-civilization, uh, a, a Christendom, is not easy. It takes time. It takes a long-term intergenerational commitment. It takes faith for all of life. It's got to be fueled by the Holy Spirit, governed by the application of God's law. And it can't be completed with the local church as a temple, mini-temple mindset. All right, number four. Local churches, another area where the, the mini-temple mindset creeps into the local church, local churches that cause the kingdom to orbit around supporting a temple activity. So remember, in the old days of the Old Covenant, the Le Levitical priests had very well-defined duties. The worship of the people of Israel was entirely centered around the temple and the actions of Levitical priests. Okay, The priests were to administer the temple rituals. They were to guard the temple from any who did not belong. And when we think about it, can we really say that our local churches today are all that different from that culture? You'll hear this a lot in reform circles, quote, the church's fundamental duty is to preach the word, administer the sacraments, and enact church discipline. And if you're in a reformed church, you've probably heard this a thousand times. I know I have in the past. And what's common about all these activities? These same churches prescribe that these duties be led and carried out virtually, virtually exclusively by ordained officers, the, uh, the ordained officers of the church. The main function, activity, and focus of the church then begins to orbit around the duties of the elders and their functions in temple keeping. What did the temple priests do? They taught, they administered rituals, and they guarded the temple from intruders. And we've simply seen this pattern copied to the local church with the uh, focus of the officers of the church. They teach, they administer the rituals, they guard the table. So this, this is impossible to miss. It creates a culture where what the church regards as service to the kingdom is almost completely subsumed by tasks carried out to serve the local church, as if the two were one and the same. In addition, since ordained elders can only be men, it creates a perception, if not the reality, that the service that women do, both in and out of the local church context, are mar is marginal. Right? It can create that, that perception and that reality in the local churches. Okay, so that's a that's a huge issue. Number five, uh, local churches that put the focus of worship on temple ritual rather than on service. So at your typical local Protestant church, worship is commonly understood to be centered around the part of the Sunday morning event where the congregation sings songs to God uh, and in praise. And we love that. I love that. I love singing songs to God. I love singing hymns. Um, but during the days of the old covenant and the temple system, worship existed both in the temple uh, with animal sacrifices and outside the temple in a more decentralized, less regulated fashion. Those who truly understood what the temple worship was, uh, they understood that it was pointing forward to, um, to something of more substance. And we see that in Hosea 6, verse 6, pointing forward to good works. Uh, Hosea 6, 6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So God makes this distinction in what the, these systems were pointing forward to. Amos 5, 23 and 24. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. The priority is ethics. God's priority is ethics in worship. And worship is mostly substantively what you do in your life. 
It is not substantively a once a week thing where you go and sing songs to God. As much as I love doing that, and as much as we all love doing that, right? It is not the primary thing because God won't listen to your songs if your ethics are not in line with his law, okay? And in line with justice and righteousness. First uh, Peter 2, 4, and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to what? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Romans 12, 1. What are those spiritual sacrifices? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Christ is your Messiah. He is your Lord. He is your King. Out of gratefulness, not out of an earning your salvation kind of thing, but just out of gratefulness of who he was, uh, who he is and what he's done for you, living holy, living, doing good works is a good thing that we all need to be about. Okay. In the local church culture, we've sort of done the opposite when it comes to our view of worship and what worship is. We've made the concept of worship center around congregational singing, and we've given less emphasis to worship as obedience to God's law and the spurring one another onto good works. We, co we come across verses like Hebrews 12, 29, where it calls for acceptable worship offered with reverence. Um, you know, God is a consuming fire, so make sure that your worship is offered uh, with reverence and carefulness. And we sort of immediately, our minds are drawn to pews and to hymnals and to uh, should we sing the Psalms or should we sing the hymns or what, what contemporary music. And rather than our minds being drawn to, okay, Christ and his law and his ethics and who he is. That is like the warning is to not go back to Levitical priesthood, go back to works righteousness, go back to the old system, but to embrace Christ. Because if you don't embrace Christ and you stay in that old obsolete system, then be reminded God is a consuming fire, right? And he will not accept your worship, your old school obsolete worship while you reject Christ. Okay. And so that when we think of worship, let's think along those lines. Six and seven. Let's start with six. Local churches where only their temple officials can fence the admini and administer the table. Okay, so with the order of the Levitical priesthood, it was the exclusive job of the Levitical priest to conduct the ritual elements of worship in the temple system, including ritual cleansings. So no regular Joe or Jill Christian could just waltz into the Holy of Holies and try to do the duties of the Levitical priesthood. Um, the, only the Levitical priest could do it. And if anybody went against that they would be killed they would die all right it was very very serious uh the levitical priests exclusively were to mediate between god and man in the temple should any laity seek to approach god's holy presence improperly they were to slaughter the intruder their job was to fence access and administer the rituals does that sound familiar right what are some attitudes that you catch at a lot of these churches you know how dare that non-ordained elder baptize that new believer or you'll hear, the elders decided to ban John Doe from communion for one month as a punishment for XYZ sin. Nowhere in scripture is it stated that only elders can administer baptism or the Lord's Supper. In fact, scripture makes it clear that, um, that the church is, is the body that owns excommunication. In 1 Corinthians 5, they are given the task of excommunication. It's given to the covenant community as a whole. Okay, not the elders. And then we have uh, Reformed churches out there who want to compel script, uh, strict subscription to the Westminster Confession without exception in the smallest degree as a test of local church membership. Okay, so they're guarding the membership based on these criteria that are different from what Christ requires of, of you to, for him to welcome you. And then from our, our Baptist friends, you know, sorry, but before we take communion together, we want you to know that if you've been baptized as an infant only, and not as an adult, well, you're not welcome to participate. Would your church membership policy have meant that R.C. Sproul wouldn't be admitted to membership at your church should he have sought it? Maybe it's time to reevaluate whether you're practicing local church membership or local club membership. With regard to local church membership, since it points to a universal, visible church reality, there can be no situation where a pastor or an elder board would say something like, you know, we know that you profess the true religion and we haven't recognized anything in your life that would exclude you from uh, membership, except you've been a paid baptist your whole life. Uh, you know, and, and you go to the Presbyterian church down the road, they'll take you, right? This is an 
uh, this is an elder acting as a Levitical priest, guarding his mini temple, rather than dis the decision of a covenant community based on what Christ requires for welcoming his people. Now, as recognized faithful elders in the church, is it natural for these men to lead out in these areas? Sure. Um, but again, the only reason that so many churches practice uh, things the way they do is because they have these misguided ideas about the Levitical temple practices for shadowing activity in the local church rather than the church universal. Okay. All right. Finally, local churches that treat the Lord's Supper as if it were a temple ritual. We're getting ready to do the Lord's Supper here in a few minutes. We have so lost the true meaning and function of the Lord's Supper that we have completely lost its purpose. The Lord's Supper is to be a regular meal which Christians partake of together to fellowship in the name of Christ in order to remember his covenant with us and enjoy unity together as a covenant community. In the Protestant church, we have completely disconnected it from an actual fellowship meal, which uh, Jude 1-2 refers to as a love feast or an agape feast. It's about Christ's love for us in laying down his life for us, laying down his body, and shedding his blood for us, and then our love in turn for him and for each other. It's all about the unity of the body and building fellowship in the body. His acts in enacting his covenant with us are represented by the breaking of, of bread, as was his body was broken for us, and the drinking from the cup as his blood was shed for us. In scripture, we read that in the midst of the dinner, during that first Lord's Supper, during that Passover meal, Christ took the cup and instituted the first Lord's Supper. It was a fellowship meal. It was not a ritual. Okay, It's not to say there isn't symbolism, but it is more than a symbol. It is a, it is a meal that actually enacts something ethical, judicial in us, our fellowship and unity together. And we've turned this, this feast, uh, this unity feast in praise to God and thankfulness to God into sort of a solemn, cold, individualistic ritual. Okay? So those are the seven uh, ways, and there's, I'm sure there's many more examples, but those are seven that I thought of, of how this mini temple mindset creeps into the church. And so there's, I'm just going to recap them real quick, the seven. Local churches that treat their buildings as if they were physical temples, because I know there's a lot. Local churches that compare Levitical tithing to the funding of their local church. Local churches functioning as temple events, not social orders. Local churches that cause the kingdom to orbit around supporting the temple activity. Local churches that put the focus of worship on temple ritual rather than service. And then the last two we just talked about, uh, where only the temple officials can fence and administer the table and treating the Lord's Supper as if it were a temple ritual. So when we think about the sum total, just to wrap up, of all of these effects, the temple model of the local church begins to warp our understanding of so many activities in the local church. Buildings, budget, mission, fellowship, service, discipline, giving, and more. The result is to drive the church inward with a reductionistic focus. It reduces our impact on the world by creating an environment where Christendom is reduced to so-called temple activities to make us obsessed with the shadows and neglect the substance, which was always about ethics. The bulk of our energies become devoted towards spiritual activities, almost exclusively tied up inwardly in the local church. The culture that is created also lends itself towards the creation of certain taboo subjects, which cannot be discussed because they are not seen as central to temple activities. Right? The hyper-narrow focus of the temple culture also creates a perfect environment for the overreaching arm of statism to run rampant because as soon as we reduce Christianity down to a few basic things around, sort of around what the temple was, then we created this vacuum. And into this vacuum steps secular worldviews for education, science, history, medicine, business, and on and on and on. The fruit of the approach of this culture, because this is the approach that our churches have, in the Protestant world have broadly been taking over the past however many decades, even in some ways back to the Reformation, right? Um, we need to keep reforming and we need to not remain stuck in this rut of indefinitely. A rut that was never reformed properly from the errors of the Roman Catholic Church. We love the reformers. We're all about the reformers, right? But did they do everything? No. You know, did they get every, is, was that the, the zenith of Christendom in 1600? You know, no, right? There's more reform that needs to happen. And not to uh, neglect or or see uh, or or not to appreciate them, we certainly do. It's it's hard for people to even discuss these matters in churches. So if you know folks that are in these churches and they're trying to make an impact, you know, try and help them through it, pray for them, um, because rooting out that problem is not easy. There's a lot of entrenched parties within the local churches who are so devoted to this temple model that they'll even call people divisive for even bringing up the issue. Okay, it's it's very much a sacred cow. 
So there are some uh, practical steps that we as local churches can take in order to help to shed this mindset. And um, they're in categories of business and finances. So thinking about your your church's financial situation, how your, your building is set up, whether you're using the building for things that actually matter to the community, whether you might need to um, divide as a church. If you've got a church with, with 200 people, they're all disconnected. You're just doing this ritualism stuff, this event-based stuff. Why not break up into multiple churches and use the building maybe for once a month to get together or maybe sell off the building to your congregation, turn it into a business, something that's actually self-sustaining and not sucking up the funds of the church indefinitely so that it can never expand more for the kingdom. Okay. Um, start a school in your in your church. That's a, it's a great, one of the best things that churches can do is to use their building to begin a school, sublease it, ask you know um, any other businesses that want to come in there uh, community centers is a great option um, and then have your church just meet in that building and and for free you know find a christian businessman who has a or woman who has a who has a business and a building and you try and get them to let you uh uh you know go there if you need a big place to meet or meet in homes so um, another uh area is just how we do church membership baptism lord's supper we've talked a lot about that already today um, so I won't go into that anymore, but there's some more detail we could go into there. Uh, pastoring, eldering, and teaching. You know, don't minimize the gospel. Don't uh, make the Christian faith this this tiny compartmentalized thing. If you if you're if you've got a compartmentalized culture in your church, you're going to have casual Christians, like we said. Um, don't reduce the mission of the Great Commission down to just telling people about Jesus. Because that's not all we are commissioned with. We're actually commissioned with discipleship as well. Um, beware of the seminary to elder pipeline. Often voice inexperienced men just out of seminary into leadership and they don't know much about anything. And then they're predisposed. They got a lot of debt too. And so they're predisposed to keep this, this, uh, this system going. Um, share the load and the teaching load. Um, as, as, as pastors and elders, you know, you may not be the only expert in your church. And uh, so final word, the church of Jesus Christ is a temple of the living God. There is one savior, priest, king, and mediator who intercedes for us all. His fellow priest kings, who we are, and we're living stones making up the spiritual temple where God resides with us. The church has been given a mission to go forth and win the nations to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit in the gospel. It's not insular. It is not compartmentalized. It is not escapist. It is on the move and it is storming the gates of hell. Her local churches are not local temples and they are not mystery cults marked by temple patterns, ritual shadows and practices which foreshadowed life in the new covenant time. We are ethical, judicial communities of believers united by our Savior, our mission and our love for one another. We're thankful for the temple of God that is the church universal and may Cross and Crown Church and all our local churches be marked as local communities full of individual members who are each individual temples of the living God. Brothers and sisters, it bears repeating we are not in the business of planning, advancing, and sustaining many temples. We're in the business of planning, advancing, and sustaining Christian civilization. Let's get after it.